The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. coming at you here with another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini episode 57.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the details we didn't have time to explore on the main episode. And I will tell you, there were so many stories from our guest Jason Liebig on episode 57 that we definitely didn't have time to get to at all, and we are going to try to make that up to you here as we get into the excitement that was part of Wizard 57. I mean, just the response we've gotten on social media posting the Liefeld and Lee jam cover as well as the Alex Ross cover in particular crossing international lines. People love Alex Ross's art and uh, that continues to endure. But one thing that we love around here are giveaways, free stuff. So let's get into Cap's Kooky Contests. All right, so the first contest here actually uh, is not officially a wizard contest, but it is from those folks over at Playmates, and it is for the action figures based on the video game Primal Rage. Now, if you don't remember Primal Rage, it was definitely in the vein of, you know, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, but take it to the next level, because now you have like these claymation stop motion dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures battling each other. There was blood and it was wild but they decided hey kids love to play with dinosaurs why don't we make it into an action figure line so here's what they say here now the furious dino beasts are raging action figures from playmates slash chewed ripped gnawed and devoured that's if you win so you think you're pretty tasty huh we'll be the judge of that because only the winner of the primal rage follower feast contest will have their image digitized for appearance in the primal rage 2 video game as one of the worshipful and ultimately edible followers losers however must content themselves with merely fantasizing about being torn limb from limb. So that is pretty awesome that what you're competing for here is a chance to actually be put into the sequel game. It's interesting too that they actually list www.playmatestoys.com so we're getting to this era where everything had a website but the grand prize? You and a companion will be flown to San Jose, California to spend a day at Time Warner Interactive with the Primal Rage team. At the end of the day you will be videotaped and digitized to become a follower in Primal Rage 2. First prize, you could win an original Primal Rage authentic arcade video game for your own home. I don't know, that might be better than being in the game, don't you think? Second prize, 10 winners will each receive a complete set of Playmates new Primal Rage action figures. Third prize, 10 winners will each receive a Sega Genesis Primal Rage game cartridge. What? No Sega Genesis? Oh well. Anyway, I still think that's pretty wild. Also, I will say that here on the official entry form, they ask, which Primal Rage Beast is your favorite. And I always was particular to the uh, snow ape, like feral, abominable snowman character. He's definitely seemed like he was the uh, hero of it all, even though I can't remember his name. If not the hero, at least the superstar. So do you remember playing Primal Rage? I definitely popped a few quarters into that in the arcades back in the day. But on to the next contest. This is the Spawn Homemade Hero Contest. Hey, did you read the feature on how to make your own homemade hero in this ish? Just itching to give it a try? Want to win a bunch of cool stuff while you're at it? Well, here's your chance. How to play. 
First, read the how-to article at Homemade Heroes, then grab some implements of destruction and get to work. We want you to make a homemade hero of any spawn-related character. The only rule? No fair starting with the McFarlane Toys toy. You do that, you're disqualified. Game misconduct, grab some pine. Do up a spawn, or possibly a medieval spawn, a violator, or an Angela, or possibly even a Terry Fitzgerald. Just make sure it's a character of the spawn family. Take a picture of it, no Polaroids please, and remember that focus is your friend, and send it to us. The top homemade heroes will win some keen stuff. Grand prize? One talented reader will receive one big slew of McFarlane toys as chosen by McFarlane toys. Well, that's interesting. Tons of figures from Commando Spawn to Cosmic Angela, and that's not even all. Two toys of the winner's choice will even be autographed by comic artist, toy designer, and softball player par excellence, Todd McFarlane. Interesting. So I guess eventually they'll give you a list, and then you say, yes, I want my Clown 2 signed by Todd McFarlane. Huh. Second prize, 15 readers will receive a randomly selected McFarlane toy autographed by Todd McFarlane. Now that is interesting. I, I just think an autographed McFarlane toy is a pretty nice collectible to have. Uh, it says, this contest is sponsored by McFarlane Toys, guys who sure know how to mold plastic. All right, let's check out the homemade legal text here. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Todd McFarlane Productions, and their immediate families, or the Hansons. The Hansons! <laughs> oh, I'm gonna admit this. I have Mbop on my 90s playlist, and it comes up quite often just at random, so <laughs> very familiar. Did you ever see when they were guest stars on Saturday Night Live? They did a pretty funny sketch. Anyway, here we go. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. You know, house keys, car keys, keys to the camper? What? <laughs> what the? I have no idea what that one means. All right, on to the next contest. All right, now this is kind of a fun play on words because they have here the Miramax, Dimension Films, Pressman Films, and Kitchen Sink Press present the Count Them Crows contest. Bird watching was never so much fun, but the Count Them Crows contest, kind of like Counting Crows, the band, right? Very popular at this time. Says here, want to go to the movies? This summer, the Crow City of Angels will be coming to a theater near you. Find people sponsoring this contest want you and 50 of your friends to go to a special preview screening. That's right, we said 50, the big 5-0. And the hardest part of this contest will probably be finding 50 friends. But hey, if you offer something as cool as this for free, you'll definitely make lots of new friends. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I don't know that I had 50 friends in 1996. I was lucky that I had five. Uh, here's what you do. There are several crow logos, like the one below, hidden on the pages of this very issue. All you need to do is count them, write down the magic number, and mail it with the coupon. It's that easy. The winner will be selected randomly from among all the correct entries. Oh yeah, there's some great prizes too. Grand prize? Three. That's right, three grand prizes. Three lucky winners will each get to take 50 of their friends to the movies, popcorn not included. And if that's not amazing enough, we'll also throw in a set of three-issue miniseries The Crow Dead Time from Kitchen Sink Press and The Crow City of Angels movie poster, all for just counting birds. Second prize, 50 winners will each get the three-issue miniseries The Crow Dead Time with issue number one signed by Crow creator James Obar. Third prize, 100 winners will each get a Crow City of Angels movie poster. 
poster. So they have this picture of, you know, this crow, but it's definitely made out of bones and it's like fossilized. And that is what they have hidden throughout the issue. So did we go searching for him? Of course we did. We are just that obsessive around here. So this is what I found. The magic number was five. There was one on page two in the masthead, one on page 11 in the wizard news section under Spidey's armpit, uh, page 91 in the picks section with Silver Surfer, page number 112 as part of the wizard top 100 list, and finally at the end of the magazine on the very last page 188 as part of the Ron Mars profile, they did have one more bird there. So hey, did I want to win? Even if I had won this, I don't know that 50 friends were going to come with me uh, to a movie, and I didn't even want to see this movie at the time. I just watched it like a year ago. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting prize, but I don't think that uh, anybody probably was able to gather up that many people. Although, I don't know, I would love to hear. If you're the winner of this contest, please reach out to us. Uh, of course, on the entry form, they've added a few more jokes. So in addition to how many crows that you have to write down, buttered or plain? Buttered or plain, your bread, I'm going to assume? Your crow? Anyway, let's get into the one for sorrow, two for legal text. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Miramax Dimension Films, Pressman Films, Kitchen Sig Press, and their immediate families are scarecrows. Wow, so that's it. Or scarecrows. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Don't you hate all the gooey stuff on the bottom of your shoes when you go to the movies? Eww. That is true. The sticky floors, though, I feel like that's part of the movie theater experience. Somebody spilled their Coke, it gets swept up in that area, but it doesn't get totally steam cleaned or anything like that. Yeah, you're going to deal with that for a while. All right, next contest. Top Cow Productions presents the Weapon Zero at Ground Zero contest. The countdown is over. Top Cow's new Weapon Zero ongoing series has blasted into comic stores planet-wide. The tale of these intergalactic protectors of Earth has fans buzzing, and you can get in on some great prizes if you know the score. How to play? It's a breeze. Just answer these three incredibly simple Weapon Zero trivia questions. Don't know the answers? Read the book! Number 1. Who are the five members of Weapon Zero? 2. What is the name of the Gold Thang Lord who blowed up real good at the end of Weapon Zero miniseries? Number 3. What is the name of Colonel Tyson Stone's former commanding officer? Get them all right, and you can reach Ground Zero, as in the very creation of Weapon Zero, with these keen-as-hell prizes. Grand prize, one reader will receive a piece of Weapon Zero original art and a set of the Weapon Zero miniseries issues T4, T3, T2, T1, and Zero, autographed by their creator. Creators. So fun fact, I actually found the T4 issues, so I can read this and get some of the answers. Uh, second prize, 10 readers will each receive a copy of Weapon Zero Number 1 autographed by its cool creators, Walt Simonson, Joe Benitez, and Aaron Saud. This contest is sponsored by Top Cow Productions, makers of fine comic books and dairy products. <laughs> you gotta imagine you're gonna get that ribbing when you still have the world with cow print and udders as your logo. And then over here, it does have the characters for the book saying, I fear we are not eligible to win these fantastic prizes. I know, it is tough working for Top Cow. Oh well, let's go play ping pong. So it says down here, Houston, we have legal text. 
Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Top Cow Productions, and their immediate families, or Elsie the Borden Cow. Was Borden? I'm trying to think what that was. Was that those little cheeses? I'm trying to remember. Something like that. Alright, offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. There is no second silly-ass quip here. Ha! Gotcha! Wow! See, every once in a while, they just want to make sure you're reading and they're going to turn the tables on you. Alright, this last piece here is not a contest, but I thought it was worth mentioning just as a piece of wizard history because it says Wizard Press is coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. Meet WonderCon special guest Garib Sheamus, the big cheese, telling us that WonderCon is April 26th, 27th, and 28th at the Oakland Convention Center. So it says, what's happening with Wizard? Who decides what goes on each cover? How did they pick feature topics? Is the guy who answers the letters really that rude? Your host, Garib Sheamus, publisher at Big Cheese, and Marty Stever, sales and marketing guy. At 1 p.m. Saturday, April 27th, the Calvin Simmons Ballroom. Free wizard stuff for all attendees, plus great prizes for the best questions. Ooh, I would love to find out what those giveaways were. If you attended WonderCon in Oakland back in the day, we'd love to hear about this. They also have a thing here that says, Comic Books Online, a meeting for Wizard World users, web surfers, and anyone online. Your host, Marty Stever. 3 p.m. Saturday, April 27th, room 208. So really, that was just happening right after the fact. Free wizard stuff for all attendees, plus great prizes for the best comments. Now, the question I have is, why do they not have the guy who was actually running things on their America Online presence, Buddy Scalera, handling that? That is a question. Now, also, what's up with InQuest, the guide to collectible card games? How do they come up with those prices anyhow? Who says which games are hot? Is Rick Swan really insane? P.S. Bring your magic deck. Your host, once again, Marty Stever. High noon, Sunday, April 28th, the Calvin Simmons Ballroom. Free stuff for all attendees, plus great prizes for the best questions. So in addition to Marty Stever, we might have to talk to him if he's still around somewhere. They say you can meet special WonderCon guests Rob Liefeld, Kurt Busick, Charles Vest, Jeff Smith, Chris Claremont, Dan Jurgens, and the legendary Will Eisner. That's a pretty great deal there. Uh, sounds like a lot of fun going on. Again, anybody who might have attended this would love to hear your report. All right, well, here we go with another edition of Robin's Reading Rainbow. Now, this time around, this was a, a guest submission, if you will. We had a regular guest here on the mini-episodes, and of course you heard it on the most recent edition of The Wizard Files as we were interviewing Dave Olbrich, the publisher of Malibu Comics. So he is here with us now, Mr. Chris Bailey, a.k.a. at Charlton underscore hero. How you doing, Chris? Oh, listen, I've just been bit by one of these parasites, and, I, and I've just become one of the Bloodlines characters. My goodness, what an honor this is. Yeah, watch your spinal column. <laughs> <laughs> 
thanks for having me again, Adam. My goodness, it, it feels like it's been a long time. Yeah, we, we've actually been planning this review for quite a while. You suggested it a couple months back. You're like, yeah, have you ever read Hitman? And I was like, I have never read Hitman. In fact, Hitman is a book that I see constantly in quarter bins. It is yes. a book that I remember coming out, but I just assumed, oh, it's DC's version of The Punisher. I don't read The Punisher, <laughs> so why would I read this? And I just always avoided it. And then you suggested this, and boy, am I glad you did, because there is a ton of fun to be found within these pages. But he didn't start out in his own book, Chris. Why don't no. you tell us a little bit about the origins of Tommy Monahan, the hitman? Oh, my goodness. Mr. Tommy Monahan, he debuted in Demon Annual 2. And let me tell you something about this uh, this whole crossover. So DC had a, had a crossover. It was called Bloodlines, and that was in 1993. And it was one of these things we were in the era of the annual event you know what i mean marvel was doing it for years in the 80s stuff like the evolutionary war uh, dc had moved in and they had invasion and all kinds of things so the annual thing was was a big big deal and this one bloodlines crossed over into a multitude of annuals and it introduced a whole new cast of characters that dc were basically hanging their hat on to introduce a whole bunch of new books so i mean you got characters such as blood pack razor sharp you had argus gunfire loose cannon anima cyber rat (laughs) (laughs) and of course our hero today the hitman and boy i really dug this character for something that crept in the back door on me in a demon annual i'm I'm not a demon fan whatsoever but basically a hitman gets infected by an alien parasite all of a sudden he's able to predict the future like seconds before it happens and he's fighting giant parasites he's in gotham city so he's based in the batman universe as well which is also ultra cool because you get to see him cross over with Batman in an early arc. He's a Garth Innes character. Are you familiar with uh, much Garth Innes work? Read some Preacher and uh, yeah, as I've checked out some things here, there some of his uh, also very dark and violent Marvel stuff that he's done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Garth Garth Innes is known for the Preacher, you know, the Boys, and you know the Punisher at Marvel. So you know he's done a lot of different things. Now his signature is basically very very graphic violence. You know he's known for quirky, disturbing characters with hideous deformities. He's known for ultra-violence, like a lot of shooting death, a lot of exploding skulls. And when you have books like Preacher, which is exactly what I just described right there, you know, he's not afraid to cross lines into religion. Uh, He's not afraid to go over the edge and over the top with stuff like The Boys from Dynamite. And of course, he probably had one of the most celebrated runs on Marvel with The Punisher. But now, he had no constraints. So, you know, he was basically unleashed. He was in the Marvel Knights imprint, so he could do Punisher to his heart's content. He could show ultra-violence, you know, sex. He could have the swearing. Same with Preacher and the boys, you know, Vertigo and Dynamite. They they let him have free reign, but now he's trying to do this Punisher-style character with a twist in DC under the auspices of a newsstand comic. How is Garth Ennis going to pull this off? Well, he does it with hijinks galore because, you know, Tommy Monaghan, the hitman, is actually comedy gold. So if you're familiar with Justice League, where they had you know, J.M. DeMatteis and Keith Giffen. You know, they they had the Bwahaha League. 
This is a similar in that vein where they took the Hitman character, a Punisher-style hero, and added a thousand laughs and a lot of gruesome, gruesome uber-violence. And, you know, the result is hilarity. And I, I just love this character. So I, I did go back and read that Bloodlines annual, and then mm. I did read the first few issues of Hitman just to get pulled into his world. And like you said, like, it's it's kind of interesting that he gets these powers from this alien parasite the way that that whole Bloodlines thing worked as an alien would take your spinal fluid and leave you superpowers in return, essentially. Yeah, so they're giant, hulking beasts. You know, they have extended necks. They have a weird, almost dinosaur-like head with, like, a flowing mane of hair. It's a really, really unusual-looking monster. And yet they have stolen 100% the little xenomorph tongue head teeth thing that goes out from the inside of the mouth. And that is what goes after the spinal fluid. What's strange about Tommy Monaghan getting his powers, though, is he was already a great shot. He was already a great hitman. And that was his claim to fame. But he gets these powers. They talk a lot about his eyes and his eyes being like terrifying and gross. And they're basically just drawn as black. Like he has these black eyes. But he says he has x-ray vision he also says he can read minds he can see your thoughts so he can literally predict what you're about to do now you talk about an advantage that the punisher doesn't have tommy monahan is a step up and you know a very lethal lethal hitman and you'll see it over and over again but he uses it so infrequently that it feels like garth is basically saying oh yeah yeah we'll we'll give him some powers but that was never (laughs) his intention to actually have a super powered character he just like we said, wanted a slightly funnier uh, version of the Punisher to play around in the DC universe. In fact, in the first issue of Hitman, it's pretty hilarious because I just mentioned this not not for the story, but the opening scene is him taking out a team of superheroes called the Shadow Force that look 100% (laughs) like anything you would have gotten from Image at this moment in time. So like, just right out of the gate, Garth Ennis is saying, yep, people in spandex are ridiculous. Check out this dude in a trench coat and sunglasses with guns. He is the guy you want to follow. And that continues too. And we'll we'll see this in one of the one of the issues. We see a character introduced that is clearly a uh, not so much I wouldn't say a homage, a, a direct insult to Image Comics. And we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit later on. I have a question for you because it seemed to be inferred in that first appearance in the Demon Annual that he was Irish, like he was maybe some kind of Irish hitman who had moved to the Gotham City. And yet they don't seem to play that up at all in the regular series did you feel like that was where they were leaning or did i just infer that somehow oh no 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 there's definitely an irish twist the name monahan as well you know he goes to noonan's bar you know what i mean the sleazy bar there's all kinds of different you know irish aspects to this character so i definitely think it was intentional i think that they were definitely going for an irish spin there okay well now talking about this storyline here that we're getting into which is his second arc the first arc was i think just dc's way of saying you got to give this character a high profile he gets hired to go kill the Joker in Arkham Asylum and of course Batman doesn't like that so he gets involved and it's a story but I feel like this arc is what Garth Ennis intended to launch the series with this is the type of story he wanted to tell this 10,000 bullets so it's really interesting who the villain of this piece why don't you explain to us who the big bad is the big boss yeah so in this particular aspect Tommy is matched up with a man who's considered the world 
world's greatest hitman. So it's Johnny Navarone. And he actually takes a significant wager from a local crime boss. And boy, uh, Mr. Dublez, is, I think that's how you pronounce it, is it not? Although, you if you look at it, the name is a bit of a play on words because this is actually two crime bosses because they are Siamese twins. That's right. That's and exactly it, it right. is wild. Dublez, but doubles, if you really you know read it a certain way. And so it is pretty hilarious. I mean, just right off the bat, like you said. Yeah, and one side of him is actually dead. <laughs> You know, one half of the Siamese twin is dead, and the other brother just basically carries him around like he's dragging the corpse of his own brother. Now, I think where he gets the, uh, like you said, now, doublez, you know, saying double, he feels like a very, very crazy, like almost like a Dick Tracy-style character, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Feels inspired by the Dick Tracy with just like a Garth Innes spin, and let me tell you something, I think I would pay money to see uh, Garth Innes do Dick Tracy. Oh, (laughs) that would be amazing. That would be an interesting take for sure yeah i know mike allred did it a couple years back so maybe it's garth ennis's turn to get in there but basically the surviving doubles he does make mention that monahan killed their father and killed his brother so that's why he's out for revenge that's why he's hiring this johnny navarone which there's got to be some relation to the film the guns of navarone oh definitely absolutely yeah it's all played for laughs in a big way but chris when we were preparing for this you mentioned navarone had a very familiar look who does he look like to you if you're familiar with the batman animated series with bruce timart i mean this is literally a gangster from the bruce tim series i would say he looks like the human half of two-face yeah the original version of harvey dent before he gets scarred yeah and uh he's a cool looking character he sort of has an anticlimactic ending but uh let me tell you something for about four issues you you got to believe that this guy was going to be you know the number one hitman was coming after our own hitman tommy and uh hijinks ensue from there yeah, so I uh, so you, you know the first issue of the arc is basically all set up for those types of things, and you're getting to know Tommy Monahan's world, like all his friends that he hangs out with and plays poker with at this bar. It is it's it's a great cast of characters. We don't have to get too detailed into it, but just to say that Garth Ennis is so skilled at writing characters. It's the same in Preacher. Like everybody is distinct. You understand where they come from. You like them a little bit, or you're a little annoyed by them, but you see why they're kind of allowed into this social circle you know and then the artist we haven't mentioned yet on all of this is a guy named john mccrea and he really gives it kind of i think this is the way that they got around the violence to where dc would accept it is he's got a slightly cartoony style it's exaggerated and so when there is violence and heads exploding from bullet shots and whatever else you know like it does actually look more humorous i guess than anything else it doesn't look too gruesome no, I agree with you, and I think what originally drew me to Hitman was the, you know, the John McRae art. I mean, it it is definitely distinctive. It has its own vibe. You know, the characters are rendered in a way that you've really, really never seen them before. I mean, you have Batman and the Joker, and the McRae versions of these things are really, really something to behold. And he really, really does a good job, and he can draw extreme detail when he needs, but he keeps the violence cartoony, which literally offsets like any negativity that DC would that would intercept from this stuff. But let me tell you something. This is uh, full throttle Garth Innes under the the guise, I will say, of a uh, funny camp book. Yeah, 
yeah, again, it is it is so clever, and there is a lot of parody of certain you know <laughs> tropes of the spandex superhero set. And I think we have held off long enough, Chris. We have to get into issue number five of Hitman, which has the cover declaration: "Enter Night Fist. He will hit you with his fist." <laughs> <laughs> and it is a very Jack Kirby style drawing on the front with this fist just coming out towards the reader. Everything is kind of blocky, but the art in here is just fantastic. The opening page with Night Fist is he is prowling on top of a building. You know, the moon is behind him. There are searchlights and he is gritting his teeth. He's saying, coke dealing scum. Gotham will suffer your evil no longer. Prepare yourselves for justice at the hands of Night Fist. <laughs> and describe his weapons here and his outfit here, Chris. Oh my God, Night Fist! So he basically, if I, if I'm looking at Night Fist, he looks like Shadowhawk, a combination of Shadowhawk and Batman. But the only thing he has giant metal fists. Now these are not just <laughs> gauntlets, okay? These are not gloves that he puts on. These are actual hands that he has to hold onto to punch. So he has giant hammer fists that are like literally things that he has to hold on and swing like a hammer. These things are massive, they're huge, and of course, complete and utter parody. And he goes into extreme detail. He's really, really making fun of the, you know, the darker characters that, uh, you know, both Image and DC are banging out. The whole Batman, I am the knight. And then, of course, you got Shadowhawk, which was just way over the top. You got a guy who's running through rooftops, breaking people's back, and, you know, it is definitely a, this one, to me, is a direct shot right across the bow at uh, 1992's Image Comics Shadowhawk, 100%. And man, the giant metal fist gloves are the most <laughs> hilarious thing I've ever seen. They're so great. And in fact, there, there's a particular panel. I think it is definitely also a little bit of a shot at specifically Todd McFarlane's Batman from the Batman <laughs> Spawn crossover, where yes. he and Frank Miller made Batman into a lunatic. And there's like a specific panel. It's on uh, page four. We'll post it to social media where night fist is hunched over with his really creepy grin on his face there's a little bit of a chain that hangs between his legs for no reason that is flying <laughs> up and it is just like that's a hundred percent something todd mcfarland did in that batman spawn crossover so i i just love it so so much so what's interesting is that after we hear about night fist and not so much an inner monologue because he is monologuing outright you know just so everybody can hear him while he's beating them up we meet up with Tommy Monahan and his buddy, they're chomping out on like these gigantic burgers. I mean, they are oh, just massive. huge, bigger than their heads, you know? Now, if you look at the scene around, so these guys, the reason that they're eating these massive burgers is that the joint that they're at basically has one of these eating competitions. So if you finish this burger, you get it for free. Yeah. So Tommy's friend that is with him is a guy named Nat. Yeah. Nat is, Nat is his best friend. Yeah. It's his best buddy who's hanging around in addition to all the other local, uh, I don't know if you want to call them lowlifes, but they are all in kind of the business in one way or another. They hang around at Noonan's Bar. So they go and they, they play a little pool and they're talking and all those types of things. You know, so again, just kind of setting up the world. But I think it, you, you see a flashback to where uh, Nat and Tommy were in a war together, you know, so they, they have a history as veterans. But then you see later on towards the end of the issue that we are back again with Night Fist and uh, he is there 
he basically drops in on Tommy and Nat in an alley. And as soon as he drops down from up on a roof, they just blow him away <laughs> with guns. <laughs> Just as they do so, a grenade pops into the picture. And who threw the grenade? Oh, it is Johnny Neverone. And buddy, he is ready. He emerges out of the fire. Like, this is a cinematic scene. You can almost picture this, like in a, in a movie frame. Massive explosion, and out of the fire and smoke comes this hitman in a white suit. And, the you know, the slicked black hair, and he's got the gun extended, and he's ready to take out Hitman and Nat. And I just love this scene. It's really very cool, like you said, just the layout of it all. And it bleeds, uh, quite literally, into issue number six, where basically we open on this monologue by Navarone, where he says that he goes into all these towns, and everywhere he goes, he faces off against the one that everybody's afraid of, that everybody yes. says is the best Hitman. But he doesn't brag that he's the best Hitman, because why state the obvious? Which is just great dialogue. You gotta love it. <laughs> There's actually a printing error on this one. Oh. So, you know, on the cover, you see Johnny Navarone, and he's blowing the hitman away. I mean, it's a gruesome cover. You know, he's got at least three shots off. You know, Tommy's chest is exploding, and he's flying towards the camera. You know, Navarone is cool as a cucumber, just shooting his gun. And underneath the hitman, it says, 10,000 bullets, part four of four. This is only part three. Oh, you're right. I didn't even pay attention to that. That's yes. crazy. It's a mistake, but you're right. So, but one piece of good news here, Adam. Night Fist is not dead. <laughs> yeah, he, he wakes up. You see he has some sort of bulletproof armor as part of his costumes. He just wakes up and goes, holy God. <laughs> and then he just kind of disappears. But then meanwhile, Tommy did take several shots to the chest. He got it bad. And so Nat, they're talking about where he, can you take him? Who's going to help us? All the other friends are too far away. So he has to go to the apartment of... Of his girlfriend and so in the early yes. issues of the series he met up with this woman he told her he was a hitman but she didn't believe him she thought he was just messing around and so basically when they show up and he's all bloody she's like what is going on he's like i tried to tell you you didn't believe me and then she wants to call the cops but nat's like he'll be dead do you want to deal with that right now she says no so basically they call over one of their friends to fix him up but in the meantime we see that navarone goes back to dublaise or whatever and he basically admits that he didn't see him die he didn't kill Monahan all the way and so the contract is still kind of in play like Devils is not happy with this he's pretty upset but meanwhile you find out that Tommy's been out for a week recovering from all of this and when he wakes up the girlfriend's basically like it's over get out of my apartment you lied to me you're terrible you're all scum and then basically just kind of kicks Tommy and his friends out so it's, it's kind of one of those heartbreaking moments you know part of this downward spiral for the character it's about to get worse but <laughs> but then we splash into a scene and it's at the the lobster and firkin restaurant <laughs> and boy our good friend the night fist is literally destroying every single patron in his quest for justice and boy he's got this piece of board it looks like and he's literally beating every single person to death he's oh it's you know what it is i think it's a piece of the staircase i think he broke the handle from the staircase and he's beating every patron to death while he's saying, who was the jerk in the fancy suit? I know you know. And he starts, you know, he's questioning him, you know what I mean? And boy, is he just taking people out. And I just love this character. I mean, I could see this on a big screen. He's hilarious. He's all the hilarity and stupidity of 90s I Am The Night characters. I love it. But the next scene, they go to their buddy Pat's house because they haven't heard from him. Like, he came and checked in on Tommy while he was recuperating 
operating, but then they haven't heard from him since, and they find him in the bathtub full of blood. He has been attacked by Johnny Navarone. He admits that he didn't say anything, because earlier they had kind of made some jokes about him being a little bit of a wuss compared to everybody else, and basically he just said, uh, I wanted to prove to everybody that I was tough. And he says, well, you were, Pat. You were the toughest guy of all. And then, uh, I guess it's the code of the hitman, gotta relieve the suffering, puts in the final shot into Pat's head and kills him. This is a crazy scene, and this is one of those things where, you know, how are they passing this off on a newsstand book? We'll start with the blood. So the blood is not red, it's black. Yes. Pat in the tub is a very graphic scene. You know, it's it's a tub filled with blood. You know, his arm is hanging down. He's clearly beaten to death. He has a real moment with Tommy. But I would consider this almost like a an emotional moment rather than a graphic moment. So again, you know, they get away with this graphic violence and showing like extreme blood, but in a different manner. So, you know, they're being very, very creative while tiptoeing around, you know, any constraints that DC had here. And of course, after they see their friend, Pat Noonan, who, you know, their good buddy, die in the bathtub and boy it is game on they know exactly where they have to go they're going to go right to the source the man who did this mr dublez is going to get a visit from nat and the hitman and buddy i guarantee you when he says they're going to just go and they're going to kill every single one of those worthless sons of bees until every one of them is dead that's all their plan is we're just going to go kill them all <laughs> I love it. And that's what the, the cover of issue seven, part four of four is just, yeah, bodies flying everywhere, shell casings flying everywhere. Tommy and Nat are just, you know, busting a cap in everybody. And what, what I like about their entrance. So, you know, they're in their big mansion. So this is Mr. Dublez's mansion. And, you know, he's surrounded by all his cronies. Now, they don't just knock on the front door. They drive their car literally through the front window to the point where they smash one of, one of the uh, henchmen to the wall, like completely crush him and squat. Them. Then they jump out of the front seat, and then they start mowing every single one of these people down, and it's headshot after headshot after headshot. Guns are blazing, and, and literally just heads are exploding. Again, it's black blood, for the most part, with little splashes of red, but just uh, bullets uh, going into every henchman. Now, I think this is where they're literally crossing the line. I mean, this is this is graphic. You see, you know, skulls like completely exploding, and uh, man, this is, this is vicious, and I I love that this little storyline is called 10,000 Bullets because, man, they use every one of those 10,000 bullets. And, of course, the most important headshot of all is that he blows the head off the dead brother's body. So now he's gone completely, which Mo doubles, who is the surviving one, is, no! You know, so now he's super mad. He's telling Navarone, get in there, get him! And then, of course, Night Fist has to enter the fray <laughs> once again. Your evil ends here. Kiss your worthless lives goodbye. And prepare to feel the all-consuming fury of... And he just gets blown apart from all sides by everybody in the room, literally to pieces. Night Fist would make a great 90s action figure because, you know, he strap-on accessories. Yeah. You know, they never really truly fit properly, and that's what those fists look like. They look like these giant, almost (laughs) McDonald's-style accessories, and it really looks hilarious. But boy, Night Fist jumps through the window and once again is gunned down, but make no mistake, there ain't no coming back. He loses his leg, (laughs) his arm is shot off, he is nothing but riddled full of holes. 
a moment of silence for Night Fist. Oh, amen. Uh, what's interesting, too, is that Nat ends up in the kitchen with the cook, <laughs> who's this big fat guy with, you know, his chef's hat on, and he basically says, like, you stay out of the kitchen. Mr. Double said that I get to have the kitchen. Nobody else is in here. And he's kind of manhandling Nat, but then Nat gets the jump on him and pushes his face onto the grill and burns <laughs> half of his face off. And that is just, again, more graphic, but cartoony violence as you just see the charred flesh. You see, you know, he doesn't have lips anymore on one side and his nostrils all burned. I mean, it's pretty intense. The guy's like begging for mercy. But finally, you get this big showdown where Doubles is coming after Tommy. It should be noted that the side that he had his brother's attached head on uh, was also attached to like a a robot body so he kind of is a little bit of a terminator here as he keeps getting shot but he keeps moving closer and closer to monahan do you know what this reminds me of so i know you like toys adam yes are you a centurions fan yes a hundred percent doc terror half half robot half man that's what that's what mr doubles or mr dublez looks like here and uh, he's got the half robot body and he's coming out guns are ablazing and tommy is is reeling he's trying to dodge these bullets but firing back on his own and he meets face to face with the enemy and he's got the barrel of the gun between his mouth poor doubles you know he's just lost his brother his siamese twin has been blown to pieces half his head gone and then he's got the gun in his mouth and there's nowhere to go boom goodbye and this is in a silhouette shot that you see this final shot with all the viscera and brains and everything shooting out the back of his head just a put down and then yeah you see a big chunk of what is either part of his skull or the brain or both like flying off in the distance oh. as well he's taken out the entire head here with this shot yeah so then now it's time for the final showdown with the man who thought he was the best who is here to take out the best so navarone is there he gets a shot off into monahan's arm and as he falls he says he manages to get a wild one off on the way down so he takes one last shot and then you see Navarone's expression change and he just looks down they're in the rain there's no dialogue there's nothing on this page and you just see two fingers next to like the shattered barrel of a gun and a shell casing by Navarone's foot you're like oh yeah, so he, he basically stole his career. Navarone makes his living as a hitman, and the ability to shoot is obviously your your lifeblood. Now, the ultimate hitman, Johnny Navarone, has been bested, and Monaghan gets right in his face, he cocks the pistol, he puts it to his head. You'd think that Johnny Navarone would admit defeat and take it like a man, but instead, he almost begs Tommy, hey, we're the same kind of character, you know, we, you know, we live the same life, why don't we join up? He's asking Tommy not to kill him. Why don't we team up, and you know, we can take on the world together so his final words here is monahan it has the gun in his face and navarone says believe me monahan we're better than the rest of these scum and then he says but we're all scum johnny what we're all scum but damn <laughs> <laughs> i like the, i like the sound effect but damn but damn you know we've been talking about all the violence all the over-the-top mayhem and all of that but ennis always manages to bring it back down to the core emotion of the characters and everything like that so what you have nat shows up on the scene now that all the carnage is over and he says basically we got to get out of here the cops are coming but he takes a moment for his friend he says one other thing tommy this ain't the time for you to freak out completely either you lost your girl and your homie and that 
that sucks. But you don't gotta let it cripple you, you know? You gotta keep that straight in your head or you're gonna be ready for the rubber wallpaper, man. Okay, lecture over. We leaving. You know? So it's, you just get that moment where it's just like you got a friend who's gonna talk you down and get you through it. And it's and that's what this has been all about, really. Has been about friendship. And literally, if you follow the entire run of Hitman and you get to issue 60, you get to see that friendship is forever. And uh, I will I will leave it at that. But I mean, let me tell you something. There is a very, very emotional end to the, the Hitman saga in issue 60. So uh, I'm not going to spoil it here, especially if you, you take a look at 10,000 bullets. I guarantee you, you are going to be hooked and, uh, you know, want to read more because, you know, we, we get one heck of an interesting cast of characters in these books. I mean, you know, some of the supporting cast are like something you've never seen before in any book and you know the, the craziness of Garth Innes continues and some of the characters and villains that he uh, that he creates just in this title alone and it's exclusive to this book because a lot of these things rarely ever translate to DC proper so if you know if you want craziness if uber violence is your thing but mixed with a little bit of hilarity Hitman is your jam and you're gonna love it absolutely and I can tell you you could actually read the whole saga for less than $60 for probably a yes. quarter of that price by digging through your local back issue bins finding the quarter box and you will be just fine because unfortunately maybe not as appreciated as it deserves to be so it is definitely out there and available now one thing here chris is i actually managed to pick up these issues and you know as we were discussing it i found those issues and so one thing i wanted to bring up though that i found so fascinating is there is this section that's kind of like the dc news section in issue number seven called Watch This Space. Yes. So they give an update here about what was going on at the Chicago Comic-Con in 1996. And it says here, Hitman creators Garth Ennis, who also writes a creepy little Vertigo book called Preacher, which you should check out if you're into sophisticated horror, <laughs> and John McCrea were also a big hit with fans as the adventures of Tommy Monahan are taking off in a big way. The duo's low-key demeanor at the booth could probably be explained by their after-hours behavior, terrorizing editors Dan Raspler and Helix's Stuart Moore. So basically, they were hung over <laughs> at the Comic-Con. But the funniest thing to me here, it says, double takes from Chicago, Mark Wade peeling off $100 bills for the privilege of dunking Rob Liefeld at the comic book legal defense fund flush tank. And when he was finished, Mark was offering up cash to nearby fans to share the fun. If this is true, if Rob Liefeld was in a dunk tank at the Chicago Comic Con in 1996, my goodness, I can only imagine if he did that today, he would make millions. <laughs> People looking for retribution. Oh, listen, listen. He would cure world hunger, Adam, with with the with the amount of donations received. That that's hilarious, man. I gotta say, you know, good for Rob. You know, he's a good sport. He's out yeah. there. You know, he's in the dunk tank. And and I know, you know, this this podcast, you know, doesn't is not a Rob Liefeld celebration of uh, you know of his <laughs> career. But what I'll say is that he's an interesting cat, and uh, that doesn't surprise me that he's in a dunk tank at that point. I mean, we just had the Dave Olbridge interview where you know he told the story of Rob enticing a riot by throwing out merch at one of the cons and you know right. I, I can see that all those aspects of him and that character <laughs> good time Rob Liefeld but well Chris <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining me and for suggesting this Robin's Reading Rainbow and if any of you out there want to continue to follow the excitement that is coming your way from Chris Bailey aka at Charlton underscore hero what do you got going on where can they find you I mean, uh, listen you can find all my writings and you know I run a blogging unit called the Superblog Team Up if you're on Twitter hit 
hashtag Superblog Team Up or hashtag SBTU, and you can see all our writing. So the team, you know, was fast at work. We just came off a image-specific. It's called Road to Revolution, and it talked about the early days of image, uh, some of the modern takes. And, you know, we even interviewed Dave Olbrich, who actually signed a deal for the Malibu image deal, which launched the ship of, of Image Comics. So lots to see there. Our whole back catalog is there. Uh, you can find me over on the W2M Network with Mr. Mark Radlich, where we cover all kinds of professional wrestling, different things like that. And listen, I'm always available to hang out with Adam over here at the Wizards Podcast. So thanks again, Chris. And uh, hey, on to the next segment. All right. Well, now it's time for my favorite segment. Check it out. The cream of the crap. That's right. It's our Mort of the Month. This time around, our Mort is the Rainbow Raider. It says here, substance abuse and creating comic characters just don't mix. Combine the two and you just might end up with something like the Rainbow Dillweed here. As a pre-crisis Flash villain and a post-crisis Captain Atom villain, this guy is the most colorful reason to support birth control we've ever seen. Born colorblind, Roy G. Bivolo was given a pair of Prisma goggles by his optometrist Pop, which allowed him control over colored lights. Wow. Frustrating. Frustrated by his inability to make it as an artist, Roy turned to crime and had his ass handed to him repeatedly, which happens to most people named Roy. Oh, poor Roy. Yeah, so the Rainbow Raider writes a very, very colorful costume, you know, stripes of various uh, shades and hues. Uh, but this is something where uh, I think it's interesting that his father was an optometrist and that was, you know, the, I guess, like the origin story. I mean, it's kind of weird. They're saying because he couldn't become an artist, is why he became a villain, but he started by getting those special goggles. My wife is an optometrist, so now I'm wondering how involved was she in creating any other supervillains? Anyway, uh, on to the next segment. I caramba! That's right. Here we are coming at you with a casting call. You know, we had so many stories from Jason Liebig, our guest on episode 57. We didn't have time to talk about the ever-present casting call from Wizard Magazine. And this time around, they took it to Springfield. That's right. They decided to give us a casting call for a Simpsons movie many years removed from the animated feature. This was a live-action casting call. This is the era of the Flintstones movie and all these different cartoons from the 60s and things like that getting their own adaptations but i could think of no two better gentlemen to join me for this conversation than some friends of mine who were definitely hooked on the simpsons as much as i was in this era in 1996 they are friends from my high school days you recently saw them on our youtube channel as part of my 40th birthday celebration they were very special guests who joined the celebration so happy to have with me here again Galen and Donovan. All right. So if they had released a Simpsons movie in 1996, what a bombshell that might have been. Because nowadays, The Simpsons, it's a, an institution. Back then, it was a phenomenon. So how involved in watching The Simpsons and buying Simpsons merchandise and all of that were you from 1989 until this point in 1996? Galen? 
Uh, I mean, Bart Simpson was my idol for a really long time. I remember like memorizing the Bartman dance and like doing the Bartman with other kids at school. Like everybody got in a line and started doing the Bartman. So I would say it was pretty big. I had like a one of those tin posters on my wall said, eat my shorts. I love it. <laughs> you can't beat that little scamp. <laughs> How about for you, Donovan? Because I know we, we have a text thread that is ongoing forever. And how often are we dropping in, you know, Simpsons gifts and quotes like that is just the, the vernacular we right. use. So how, how excited were you about the Simpsons every Thursday and eventually every Sunday night? I mean, I mean, the show is is so quotable. I think we've all had entire conversations that have been nothing but Simpsons quote after Simpsons quote. You, you can just have an entire conversation with those once you watch the show enough. I remember, Galen, actually, you, you had that guide to Springfield that we used to read at your house. <laughs> and that was like all the trivia and all the behind the scenes kind of stuff that was really fascinating. And so you knew like all the super obscure trivia. I remember that quite a bit. I didn't really get into like the merchandise of it because I went to a school that required uniforms and so like wearing like all the t-shirts and stuff wasn't going to fly then and it was kind of a watching under the radar sort of situation in my house a little bit which is funny now because now they have college courses on the Simpsons and it's been endorsed by the Pope so <laughs> and this Pope too you know ah, that's great I mean and you're right because those bootleg t-shirts were everywhere like the official ones and the bootlegs right like they were just ubiquitous like everybody seemed to have a Simpsons t-shirt in your elementary school at some point who doesn't love like in the NES game you gotta go around like scraping painting stuff and I got my copy. And let's not forget the arcade game. Yeah, that that was definitely one of the just the best arcade games ever. It's right there with, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and X-Men. Like those three, I feel like are the <laughs> the holy trinity of arcade games from the 90s. Now, here's the other thing. Like for me personally, like I definitely was watching it very early. And what happened, though, was as it grew and grew, like I was buying the merchandise. You know, I got my Bartman action figure when Mattel released those toys. I got like this Bart Simpson guide to life i bought the trading cards like i just i wanted like you were saying donovan galen had that book i wanted to know all the lore of springfield and really dig in and then what happened was when they started getting into reruns in the mid 90s so you had your new episodes on sunday nights but then in the afternoons they would run two episodes in our area so we could just like watch it over and over again that's when i started recording the show so in addition to watching you know live on the broadcast that every chance i got like every meal i just popped in a vhs into the vcr and i'm watching the simpsons again i still have a cardboard box filled with my home recorded tapes of the simpsons even though i have 13 seasons of the dvds you know like i want to ask you guys at this point if you could do a quick calculation how many years of your life do you think have been spent watching the simpsons like if you totaled up the hours that totaled up to days that totaled up to years what, what do you think you've dedicated in terms of brain space <laughs> i mean now that you talk about that two a day in our area on fox in the afternoons yeah when they started that my brother was going to uci he would walk like up the hill every day just to catch that simpsons and i probably watched that at least for the four years of high school solid that they had that so I think if we're talking years, it's got to be three to four years of my life probably have been devoted to nothing. To <laughs> it's at least, you know, a graduate degree's worth of time. Not that. <laughs> 
you know, that's uh, if, if they gave those out in The Simpsons, we'd all have one. That's for sure. Yeah, that, that's definitely how it feels to me. But um, so this is something where the concept of a live action Simpsons, though, like as we eventually got the movie, it was just like a long episode. It was kind of disappointing. I know I was excited just by the figures that they sold with the kids meals at Burger King. So I went and got the whole set. I even got a golden Homer one time. Like I got all of those and it was I was so excited. And then I saw the movie. I was like, oh, well. Okay. (laughs) Russ Cargill is our villain. I don't know. But the idea then of seeing like on the big screen, a live action Simpsons, this is what I find fascinating. Their choices here. So this is how Wizard introduces the idea. Let's face facts. The Simpsons has been on primetime TV longer than any other cartoon series for over six years, beating out the Flintstones, which was on for exactly six. Since that fateful January of 1990, it seems the characters have each taken a life unto themselves with that in mind, casting a live-action Simpsons flick at first seemed kind of daunting, but heck, once we started, it became easy. Here's what we came up with. So that's not that funny. Back then, just beyond six years was an accomplishment. <laughs> here we are 30 years later. It was crazy. So their first choice here for Homer Simpson, they wanted none other than Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold as Homer Simpson, guys. What year was this? What year did this, this come out? This is 1996. This is True okay. Lies era. So the fact that Chris Farley was still alive means that's a horrible pick. <laughs> Chris Farley is Homer Simpson. He would have been fantastic. And he would have been. I don't know. Because later on, they suggest Farley for uh, Barney, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. But Barney was such like, I mean, like relatively like a minor character. That's true. Like, I would have chosen uh, a, a Belushi. That's what I was just going to say. I was thinking Jim Belushi in this era. He didn't have a whole lot going on. He's doing some like oddball movies here and there. So yeah, that great, Soul Man show with Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. <laughs> Short lived sitcom. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it Tom Arnold seems like an odd choice to me, but I guess he was more popular than yeah, coming off of uh, Roseanne and true lies. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was true. Lies. Cause again, he's more of a sidekick. All right. Now next year, I thought was an interesting choice. Cause for Marge Simpson, they're like, even though she does Marge's voice on the show, Julie Kavner is a shoo-in. Heck, she's got the voice and everything. So, Because Julie Kavner was actually a live-action actress as well. She had her own movies. Like, this one, I think it's called This Is My Life. I have it on VHS over here on my shelf. Like, So she had a legitimate career outside of just voice acting. Yeah, same with Lisa's voice actress. Yeah, Yardley Smith and, and Dan Castellaneta was in a lot of stuff in small roles back in the day, so... I think I think Marge is a tough one. That voice is so iconic. You need that voice. I think it's almost more iconic than the hair. It's true. And speaking of which, like the thing that disappoints me most, like I said, I stopped watching The Simpsons at season 13. And at this point, my wife has watched more Simpsons than I have. She's binged the entire series between Hulu and Disney Plus. And I just, I can't get into the later seasons, but especially the most recent seasons because Marge's voice is so different now. She's older and it really does reflect in her voice and it doesn't feel like Marge anymore. It's really kind of crazy because the, the character on the show hasn't aged. Side note on Marge, her hair, she was originally going to be revealed to be a bunny. Grab it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because Matt Grading had his Life in Hell cartoon, yeah. All right, uh, next up here for the most important casting, possibly, especially in the trailer, we would have seen this character. For Bart Simpson, they wanted Kieran Culkin. 
which here's the thing like he was fuller obviously you know the bedwetting cousin in home alone and at this point you know he had like roles in, in several films i think he was even in one of the a christmas story sequels my summer story but like yeah. nowadays knowing what he's at the high profile shows that he's on now i think people would be much more in favor of it whereas back then it was like oh he's macaulay culkin's brother eh. wasn't page master right about this time that yeah, macaulay culkin did that yep yeah yeah you know I would like to say I think I think I think I would have liked to see a young JTT take a heel turn. <laughs> you know, I really think that's where I would have liked it. I mean, I guess Kieran Culkin's all right, you know. Yeah, like I think he certainly had it in him, but I don't think at the time we would have seen it whereas, you know, uh Jonathan Taylor Thomas, I can't remember if it was this year or the year after, but he had played Huckleberry Finn in that Tom and Huck movie. So he had that little bit of the mischief in him. So I think that's a good pull. Now, for Lisa Simpson, this is like totally, you know, solidified in the 90s because they wanted Lacey Chabert from Party of Five and eventually the Lost in Space movie. She has a squeaky voice, which I think works perfect. I think that's a great choice. Really and truly, I think that's a really good choice. Yeah, you lost me on that one. I didn't watch Party of Five. So. <laughs> now, for Patty and Selma, this has been a bit of an interesting conundrum, right? They are twins. They have different hair. So they're, they're talking about just one actress to play both roles, which I think is a fascinating idea. And so they want Florence Stanley from My Two Dads is what they are uh, referencing uh, as her show. But I remember her. She was on the first season of Night Court. Yes she, yes, she was. She was the bailiff. Yeah. And so she's fantastic. And yeah, I, I think that works really lovely. She just had you that troll. voice. I think, though, if you wanted to sell tickets, you'd have to do B. Arthur. Oh, yeah. You know, I just think if, if you're talking marketability, marketability, B. Arthur's there. Although I will agree, your name even on Night Court is Selma. So pretty close to what you needed, you right? <laughs> <laughs> scratchy voice okay now next up here i just think this is funny because like casting for maggie is kind of just what are you gonna do you just need a baby right like unless you're gonna go like cgi on this, yeah, baby. this, is, where they, this is where they do the bad 90s cgi and, <laughs> uh, the fake looking kid you should yeah. get the dancing baby from ally mcbeal to play maggie oh geez <laughs> but here they said they want the baby from baby boom I remember the movie Baby Boom, but I do not remember the baby from Uh, Baby Boom. But I think that movie came out in like 1987 or 1988. So that that kid would already be an eight or nine year old at this point. (laughs) Okay, next one here. I mean, this just feels like it's right on point, which for Abe Simpson, Grandpa Simpson, they want Abe Vigoda. Yeah, I don't think you can do any better than Abe Vigoda for Grandpa Simpson. I think that's, that's pretty perfect. The only other person that I would choose based on character type, I guess I would say, and not so much like look, because I think he has the look of Grandpa Simpson, but is William Hickey, who you might know from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He's the guy who talks like this, and he sets a Christmas tree on fire and all that stuff. Like He he just was that crazy old man who said crazy things on every sitcom and every movie. So I think he would have been great, but it's not exactly the same attitude. This is another one that is just spot on. You cannot beat it. And they want Al Franken from Saturday Night Live, now a senator with maybe not such great press, but uh, he just has the look 100% of Smithers. 
That's true. Yeah, square off that haircut and Matt Smithers. Yeah, but for Mr. Burns, I thought this was pretty funny because they wanted Conrad Bain, who played the dad on different strokes. Oh, okay. He's just got the receding hairline. It's perfect. You could put some prosthetics on him and he would be a dead ringer. I I guess the question is, like, does he have that uh, evil businessman to him? And I guess we always saw him in a suit. He was a super rich guy. So, yep. Now, for Mo, I love this uh, because I want this actor in pretty much every movie. But they chose Dan Hedaya as everyone's favorite bartender. I think Dan Hedaya is a good choice there. I think as long as he could pull off the sort of... He already has that like that cadence to his speech in a lot of the characters he plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely think he could do Mo. I think that's a good choice. Uh, what about a Paul Reiser? Because he has the hair and... Mm. Might be a good, might be a good one too. The only thing is, Paul. Ra- well, I guess I was gonna say Paul Razor, not necessarily known for being slimy, but in Aliens, he was totally slimy. Yeah, yeah, he was a sleaze ball in that movie. Because I was almost gonna say they don't have it here, which surprised me, but. uh Steve Buscemi, but then I was like, no, Steve Buscemi has to be Herman, the guy with the one arm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good, that's a better fit. And if there was ever a Simpsons character personified, it is Josh Saviano from The Wonder Years, who they claimed should play Millhouse. Absolutely. Though was he still like, that was like teenage Wonder Years, though. Yeah, he's, he's a teenager. He's a young adult, and they're casting Kieran Culkin. Who's yeah, like, 10 years ago, Millhouse would work. So somebody from the Mighty Ducks who could have done it? Oh, there's got to be somebody in there who could have fit that. They were a they were a good good group of outcasts. The the kid from the the Sandlot, the catcher, could have been Nelson. <laughs> yeah, that would have been pretty good. Yeah, for Krusty the Clown, this one cracks me up because it would have been like like a very offbeat and perfect choice if you just wanted to get a little crazy. But because he was in Shakes the Clown wearing clown makeup, they wanted Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> You know, that's a good choice. I think the way I would have gone in would be, you know, originally Krusty the Clown was supposed to be Homer in disguise. Mm-hmm. So I would have gone with whoever you pick with Homer and just had him in a dual like role. A dual role thing, yeah. yeah. That would have been fun. Wow, I like that. I think that would have been a way to go. But of course, if you're not going to do that, Bobcat Goldblatt is a perfect, you know, I just, I could picture Bobcat Goldblatt taking off his shirt and having 32 nicotine patches on, you know? <laughs> Scratchy. <laughs> okay, we already talked about Chris Farley as Barney. I think though, if you didn't do Bobcat as Krusty, Bobcat would make a really good make a solid Barney. Yeah. A solid Barney. <laughs> I think it would just be a fun, weird stunt casting thing. It would be off character. But what if you just got George Went? to play Barney because he just has like a one line thing and he comes in, you know, burps and then it's George went like, <laughs> see, I, I'd actually would put the, you know, the, one of the Belushi's is Barney. That might be, Oh, okay. You know, let's, let's not forget the, the Belgian animal house and how classic <laughs> that's true. That's, that's hard to live up to. Okay. Now the last one here is definitely just one of the, you know, the big controversies of The Simpsons lately, which is the character of Apu. There's been a whole documentary devoted to the problem with Apu and all of that. But at this time, you know, like it was a different world. But Wizard doubles up 
on the problematic nature of this, not even understanding what was to come because they want Fisher Stevens from Short Circuit 2, who was playing an Indian character in Brownface, to be Apu in this movie. And it just cancels everything. I think in 1996, that is a perfect decision. Right. But this happens a lot in Wizard, guys, is there's a lot of humor and, you know, just references and things that have not aged well. And everything, you know, from a certain era, you know, in that perspective of 30 years, you're always like, oh, well, we didn't know that then. Yeah. <laughs> As we close out here, would you nowadays want to see a live action Simpsons movie? Or do you think you'd rather have like a motion capture, but maybe like more 3D animated film? I'd like to see live action, but I would like them to, I think they would have to like de-comicify the characters a bit. You know, they would have to sort of like, they could be, le- they'd have to be less caricatures. Like Marge's hair could not be that tall. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work live action, you know? I think if you're like trying to do facial prosthetics to make Homer look like Homer, that's just going to, you're going to end up with giving kids nightmares. But if you're like, okay, this is Homer and this is what he looks like now, yeah, you could do it. I don't know if I would like want to see it unless they did something kind of like meta with it. Like, you remember the episode when Homer goes in 3D and he ends up in like walking down the street? Yes. Like doing something like that for an entire movie would be hilarious to me. Like I would want to see that for 90 minutes. Their cartoon selves just interacting with normal people in, in real world situations. I think like, that would be really interesting. I, I, yeah, I think that is the best way to go. Although if they were going to go live action, I have to say for me, I would want full prosthetics, but like those old Duracell commercials with that super creepy family that was all like plastic and weird and just make it almost like uncomfortable to watch like kind of dark like kind of weird like what leave is it the- to adam to reference an obscure duracell commercial right? <laughs> i'm thinking like a primus video donovan knows what i'm talking about i can't remember what primus video it is but they have like the big looking person like the duracell people oh okay just a little more hip of a reference than duracell <laughs> slightly more hip but still very 90s (laughs) that's the era we're in that's where we should be well gentlemen i want to thank you so much for uh joining me and hey i want to invite you out for some frosty chocolate milkshakes over at crusty burger gelatinated non-dairy gum-based beverages (laughs) nailed it all right now we're gonna get into the wizard's pick section here we're gonna highlight all these books that ron mars was writing because he was a busy busy man at this time Uh, this first one here is silver surfer dangerous artifacts and it says literally years in the making this one shot will blow readers minds says ron mars quote this project easily is the most amazing piece of comic artwork i've ever been involved with he states the detail claudio that's claudio castellini put into this is mind-boggling the people up at marvel are just baffled at how he could have done it that attention to detail came from castellini's painstaking years of work on the story mars says quote i wrote the plot for this nearly four years ago before i was engaged he laughs now i'm married and have a baby and it's finally gonna come out it's 48 pages and claudio took three years to do it you could do the math on how fast he worked he really labored over it and the editors decided to let him take his time and do his very best that approach paid off so it says here the story focuses on a comet that has appeared in our part of the universe after 
after a billion year orbit. Fabled is the repository for a fabulous energy source, it catches the attention of Galactus. He in turn manipulates the Silver Surfer into retrieving it. At the same time, another mysterious figure gains the help of a new female character named White Raven to do the same thing. Ultimately, she squares off against the Silver Skyrider. Quote, the difference between her approach to her goal and the Silver Surfer's approach makes up a major part of the story, Mars explains. She's a mercenary, very cold, calculating, and ruthless. That sets up a real diversity between the Surfer's nobility and her merciless methods. We bounce back and forth between them before they meet up. And Wizard says, While there have been many Surfer stories in the past few years, there's never been one like this, Mars claims. Quote, Claudio's Galactus is easily the most spectacular version ever done, he states. That covers a lot of territory, but Mars knows it. Everybody, Kirby, Mobius, Ron Lim, all of them take a back seat to what Claudio did here. Early word of mouth indicates Mars may not be exaggerating. In an unusual move, Marvel released a black and white version of this story featuring Castellini's Tone Inks at the major Italian comics convention last fall. It was huge, Mars says. Fans who saw his pencils on Marvel vs. DC have just seen a hint of what he is capable of producing. So there you go. I don't know how many of you read this. I certainly had never heard of it. So I'd love to hear how it compares to that Mobius and Stan Lee collaboration. Alright, so also at this time, Mars of course was writing Green Lantern. That was his claim to fame. And Green Lantern number 74, it says here, if you're not reading this comic, you're a great A knucklehead. Trust us, it's one of the best titles out there. Period. Kyle heads to Ran after hearing a plea for help from Donna Troy and witnesses the Dark Stars dropping like flies as they take out the superior might of Graven, one of Darkseid's sons, and his superior army. Even worse, their next victim could be Jon Stewart. Great stuff by Ron Mars, Daryl Banks, and Romeo Tingal. So in addition to hyping up Ron Mars' actual comic books, they hype up Ron Mars himself in the wizard profile. Now here is an oversight that I apologize for. So many of you have said you loved the wizard profiles in the magazine, and I really have not covered them at all. I mean, they've been a part of the magazine for two or three years at this point, and it just felt like maybe we were going to get a lot of the same territory covered, so I wasn't putting them in here, but let's see how you respond to this. So, these are the questions, and here are the answers. Wizard asks, first comic read? Uh, one of the real early Spider-Man or Avengers books? Favorite comic of all time? Probably The Dark Knight Returns. It was a real kick in the head. Favorite work of your own? My six month old son. Ah, Superpower you would most want? To be able to transport from one place to another. Favorite munchie at 2am? Leftover Indian food. Nicknames you have? Eh, nothing that stuck past high school. Favorite toy as a kid and as an adult? As a kid I really loved the Mego superhero dolls. As an adult, a handmade Kyle Rainer Green Lantern action figure that Terry Austin gave me for Christmas. Did Terry Austin make it? That'd be pretty awesome. Things you collect? Toys and books. Person who would play you in a movie about yourself? Matthew Perry. <laughs> Favorite cartoon? Batman the Animated Series. Person you'd most like to work with? Mike Mignola. Person you would most like to meet? Stephen King. Favorite musical performer? Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Oh, going hard there, Ron. And favorite TV show? NYPD Blue. Oh, squarely in the 90s is this questionnaire. Uh, last good movie you saw? Heat? And last good book you read? The Devil Soldier by Caleb Carr. Finally, if you had the power of the Beyonder, you would want to work faster 
faster and better. But man, Mars, 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 you were really hitting it, weren't you? So we're hoping to have Ron actually come on the Wizard Files in the future here because he was a wizard favorite and he was just a fan favorite in general during this time. And so uh, hopefully in the near future, you will be hearing from Mr. Mars and get his recollections of all the coverage in Wizard Magazine. But uh, hey, let's close this thing out. And that does it for this edition of Wizards Half. Want to thank you all for joining me once again. And thank you to my special guests, Galen and Donovan. Yes, my good buddies talking about The Simpsons and Chris Bailey, aka at Charlton underscore hero for our discussion about Hitman comics. And speaking of Chris Bailey, if you haven't listened to it yet, just before this episode, we dropped an interview with Dave Ulbrich, who was the publisher of Malibu Comics in the 90s. And we talked all about the launch of Image Comics and the Ultraverse and so many other details of that era. He was a super, super nice guy and a lot of energy, so I definitely recommend that edition of The Wizard Files, and thanks to Chris for setting that up and his collaboration with the Superblog team-up, this big event this year where they're talking all about the launch of Image Comics, so you can go find those various postings. Now, as far as our next episode, we are not going to be doing a main episode. Of course, we are recording episode 58, covering that issue with returning guests Gabe of Gabe Loves 90s Comics, because he does. He wants to talk about them. But we are doing a special issue, yes, the Spawn Tribute Edition issue of Wizard, with a special guest who is awesome. You know him because he loves Spawn. In fact, he has one of the most extensive Spawn collections in existence. It is Ty Diaz, aka at Pogoman on Twitter. You know him by the hashtag SpawnHunter. He and I had a great, great conversation digging into the details of, of this issue hearing about his collection and just a, a lot of fun. So look forward to that special bonus episode dropping soon. And hey, make sure that you reach out to us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. If you're not following the YouTube page, guys, there is so much going on there of really weekly videos that we're doing various hauls of things that are coming into the archives, whether it's 90s comics, issues of Wizard, promotional posters, so many other cool things on the way. So keep an eye out for that. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.